and welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Uh, today, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Nick Ogden. How's it going, Nick? It's going fine. Thanks for inviting me. It's a lovely, wet, windy day in London. <laughs> I know. It's gone from, like, beautiful summer to, like, torrential rain again, which is quite bizarre, isn't it? I'm certain there's nothing going wrong with our climate. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. Climate change, not, <laughs> not a thing. Not a Don't thing. panic, guys, no. yeah. Um, so... Thanks for joining us. I'd love to kind of expand a little bit around. I know we've, me and you have had plenty of conversations, like I think a few of good ones in Amsterdam Airport, actually, uh, as we've Shh, been. We shouldn't confess to those. Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about those another yeah. time. Um, but maybe if we can talk a little bit about your background and, I mean, who you are. Okay. Um, we'll sort of cover the, the world pay and the clear bank stories later. But maybe if we start a little bit about what's your background? Oh, I guess I'm a professional hacker. If that's the right way to right thing to say these okay. days, um, I've been passionate about IT and all things technical for many many years. Mm-hmm. Um, way back in the early nineties, got involved with Sony and Panasonic on a project called the Electronic Book. Okay, and those of you who've got electronic books and Kindles and all the rest of it, that was the precursor technology that led to the development of electronic books worldwide. Wow. And I was the idiot who got on a plane and flew to Tokyo to meet with the guys who were running the electronic book project from both Sony and Panasonic to tell them that they needed to take the caddy because the, the original electronic books were on a 200 um, uh, megabyte CD-ROM, yeah. a little small CD-ROM that sat inside a caddy that sat inside a mechanical CD player. It was very state-of-the-art mm. in 1990. <laughs> um, but very cumbersome, chewed battery power like it was going out of business and didn't really work as a distribution method. Mm. And we had a number of people involved, big publishers, HarperCollins, Penguin Books and the like, involved in the whole electronic publishing Mm. um, sphere. And everybody was wrestling with the fact that their media was locked inside this piece of hardware. And I explained to them, actually, they were holding the whole market back. They needed to release the standards, release the code, allow the um, electronic book publishing standards to come out from this caddy device, Retain, remain within the CD-ROM if that was the way it was going to go, but open the market up. And that's what they agreed to do. Interesting. And I mean, it's um, the difference between the, the sort of medium for distribution and the, the thing that it's actually solving for people. It's, a, it's kind of a constant thing, isn't it? People yep. uh, ossify around Blockbuster and v- VHS and yep. you know, that being their thing and lose the ability to kind of move forwards. But I mean, I don't want to turn this into sounding like it's a this is your world, uh, like, you know, this is your life type metaphor. Yeah. But, I mean, you've always done really well at kind of getting ahead of those curves, right? Yeah. How, how would you do that? Um, I've just been lucky, I guess. I mean, we'd, we'd done the work on the electronic book and we were at a book fair, which, you know, you always go to, um, at the Hammersmith Novotel, you know, that famous um, whatever it is on the uh, A4. <laughs> yeah. And in a room at this um, show were a load of geeks around computers looking at something called Mosaic. Right. All right. Most people listening to this podcast now will think, what's he talking about? But Mosaic was the earliest initial browser that we all used to access the internet before the commercial internet arrived in 1995. When I saw that, I thought it was my, that was my eureka moment. And I thought, that makes computing easy. That, that was it. Nothing more complicated than that. Um, and so going on from then, um, I tracked down the guys with the internet, tracked down a guy called Tim Challoner who ran a business called edX linked to Canterbury University. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ran that from you know, big offices. It was the attic of his house in Wimbledon. Um, and we put a lease line into the internet from Jersey, which is where I was living. And we set up the internet in the Channel Islands. Wow. That was, that, that was it. Um, the information superhighway arrived. It was incredibly successful. We had four US Robotics 14K4 modems and a computer called Zippy. It always <laughs> broke on Friday nights so we could go to the pub. 
<laughs> I mean, there's, there's fortune or uh, purpose on that one, I guess. Yeah. Well, that led us to build a shop um, in 1994. We were running Barclays um, point-of-sale systems for another business that we had. Okay. Um, and so we had access via X25 technology, which, again, most of your listeners won't ever understand, mm-hmm. but that was an old technology. And so what we were able to do was to build a web shop, all right, and then c- directly connect the output from the web shop into the Barclays system and authorize a payment transaction. That's pretty impressive. It sounds very, very easy these days. Everybody does that for a living. But we did the first one in the world in the summer of 1994. So that was the first online shop in the world. Yep. That is impressive. And that, and, got, uh, that got confirmed last week, be interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I think, like you say, it's, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, somebody would be like, great, I'm going to build a website and use Stripe. Uh, yeah. And actually, people don't realize how difficult those things were when there wasn't actually any infrastructure to make those things happen. Oh, um, God, it was, it was, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a collection of, of, of crap. You know, it's that, the technical phrase for things you keep that you won't let your wife throw away. <laughs> and I've got an electronic book player, which is totally useless. The batteries don't work, but I keep it for sentimental reasons. Mm. And I've got the original set of floppy disks that, mm. as an ISP that we used to send out to people uh, and our customer service was appalling it was you know people would certainly say what's TCP and we'd say it's something you put on your knee when you bang it you know it's, <laughs> it's dreadful stuff but you know we got there so how how well did the shop do um, well it was selling wine um, in Guernsey all right to seven internet subscribers okay. so it was a commercial success not very well what it did do however was in the uh, December uh, uh, 1994, mm. we showed this online shop to Barclays Bank, and that led us to create Barclays Square as a joint venture with Barclays Bank, which we launched in the summer mm. of 1995, which was the world's first bank-endorsed e-commerce shopping mall. Wow! Um, and that was hugely unsuccessful as well because we just did there wasn't a market. Mm. You know, there weren't people connected to the internet. The internet speeds were ridiculously slow. Yeah. Um, you know, we had Argos on there trying to sell weightlifting equipment, everything you could imagine. If you do a business book of all the things you should never do in e-commerce, Barclays Square was that. Yeah. However, it created a pivotal moment in relation to saying, this stuff is real, a big bank with a blue eagle's got behind it, and it's going to change the world. Yeah. And, and, I, and I guess what that was has led to where we are today, which is amazing. You know, the, a, a million iterations since then. But yeah. I mean... What was before then? Like, what, where, where, like, what did you do at school? What did you like to... Oh, God, I, I was, you know, I enjoyed school, but I wasn't great at school. Right. Um, I was meant to go in the Navy and didn't. Um, I became a policeman. I'm an advanced police grade one driver. Wow. Hence my passion for stupid red things that go fast. <laughs> Yellow things we, that go fast. We can come on to that one later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, and then I went to law, and then I went into business. And so I've worked for myself since 1984. Wow. And I mean, after the shop, I mean, the thing that I think uh, I, I saw really recently, you know, the, the sale of, of, of WorldPay, yeah. um, talking of things that uh, your wife hasn't thrown out yet from your garage, but I saw the original pitch pack for WorldPay Correct. with the floppy disk and yeah, everything. Yeah. So I mean, oh, I'm going to drip feed those through LinkedIn for the next 20 years till I fall off the planet. I think. <laughs> Great social content. That's but I mean, tell, tell us about WorldPay because that, that's an amazing well, it, uh, it was, story in itself, I think. It was an accident. I mean, I think most lucky things are accidents in a strange sort of way. Mm. Because we'd built Barclays Square, we shared all the MI, MI with Barclays. We got tons of press, right, uh, off the launch of Barclays Square, front page of the FT and all of that sort of yeah. stuff. So all the Barclays guys were running around trying to get in the various newspapers and whatever career progression. You know, we were sat in Jersey, the three of us and our computers saying, oh, sure, what should we, you know, what should we do now? Looking at the MI that was coming through, mm. real boring stuff, right? 
And people kept saying to us, can you tell us how much these things cost? Right? And so my assumption was Keith, our web developer, had broken the website, so I gave him, gave him a kick, said, come on, Keith, he's broken again, you know, again. And it wasn't. What they were saying was they were based, you know, this is in days of pre-Euro, mm. right? So they were saying, you know, we're in France, and we're looking at these things for sale in Argos, Sainsbury's, Toys R Us, all yeah. the big retailers, and we don't understand the value of what you're trying to sell mm. because we judge value in French francs, and you're trying to sell us stuff in pounds, yeah. and there's no, the currency conversion doesn't exist. And in 1995, when we used to travel, you went and got traveler's checks and you got cash, mm -hmm. right? You know, prepaid didn't exist, all right? And so you got a currency fix before you traveled somewhere, so you knew what the value of something was likely to be. And it used to be about you know, one pound was 10 francs or whatever. It's now one pound's one euro, so it's changed a bit over those years. But anyway, um, and so you had that knowledge. And what happened was the, the internet took that away, all right? Um, and if you look on that business plan on that LinkedIn post, it says the, the, the internet created a global market, but there isn't a global currency. Mm. And that was the issue. That was literally the strap line on the front, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was. And that was the issue that we set out to fix. So we went to Barclays and we said, you're a big, hairy UK bank. Can we have multi-currency payment processing, please? You know, it slips off the tongue mm. so easily. Mm. And they said, no, we don't do that. We're just a bank. And they didn't. <laughs> and we had banked um, our business, our little you know, startup business, FinTech it was, but we didn't call it that because the name wasn't invented. Um, we'd banked with NatWest, and NatWest had given us an overdraft which we'd used to build Barclays Square with. Some irony there, I guess. Um, and NatWest approached us immediately after the launch of Barclays Square and said, look, you know, Derek Wallace, who was the CEO, has instructed us to come and talk to you to see whether we can work together. Um, and we said, you know, no, you know, we don't have any restrictive non-competes or whatever, so happy to talk to you. Mm. By the way, do you have a multi-currency payment processing engine, please? And they said, funnily enough, we do. Ooh. Because they'd built one for BA, for BA doing their, their air tickets and all the right. rest of it. But it was a, a land side, fixed side uh, system. It would never gone anywhere near the internet. Yeah. And they had no idea how to take it to the internet. Mm -hmm. So we did a deal with them. And we ran natwest.com. Wow. Impressive. Right, for a number of years. Um, we set about then working with them to build um, the, an online version mm -hmm. of what was effectively streamlined mm -hmm. at, the, at the time. Um, and to connect that into their systems. Um, which took us... Nearly two years to do. Mm. All right. um, by the summer of 1997, we'd got that done, finished and working. And I was in London. It was the week after Princess Diana died, um, having dinner. And some people said, can you do the Diana Memorial Fund on your world pay thing? And I said, yes, I think we can. I'd have to check with the my chums at Streamline to see if they're okay. And so I phoned up to say, is it okay? And they said, yes, it's fine. And Tony Surridge, who was a head of Streamline there, said, yeah, that's fine, carry on. So we wrote a letter into Michon de Rea and Kensington Palace saying, look, we're ready, we can do this for you on the Friday morning. And on the Friday nights, the Diana Memorial Fund site was live. Uh, in those days, it was very, very hard to get URLs. And yeah. so we just nicked www.natwest.com that we had control of, put a forward slash on it and put World Pay after it. And then we told Derek Wallace about it the day after it had gone live, which was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine there some interesting conversations on it. At that that was a WTF conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, just, it was just for a little while. But, but, it, that, but it worked. And yeah. the interesting thing about that is, you know, did we get donations? Yes, we did from all over the world. Mm. We didn't get any chargebacks and we didn't get any fraud. Yeah. 
I mean, that's... And that uh, was to change quite quickly thereafter. Yeah, what you mean in terms of getting through it? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But, yeah. um, the, you know, any time that these things catch on, people will try and exploit them at some point, won't they? So, but, so I guess on, on those things, it's like seeing an opportunity, taking uh, taking the impetus to go and make it happen. Yeah. I mean, where have you... How have you managed to get people behind you to do those? Because, I mean, the, the thing that I always say is the, the, hardest, the hardest decision I ever made was to quit my job yeah. to to join nothing. Yeah. Um, how have you managed to kind of get people to galvanize behind these things? Because, I mean, particularly in big organizations, now yeah. West Barclays in the mid-90s, maybe not the most innovative people in the world, therefore yeah. getting them to join in on those things. How have you managed to do that? Um, I, my motto in life is the answer is always no, unless you ask the question. Because if you don't ask the question, by default, the answer is no. Yeah. All right. And if they say no, you're actually no worth no worse off. Yeah. Most people don't like saying no, and so they say maybe. So I'm just a cheeky pest. In fact, <laughs> there are regular supervisors at the Bank of England who I used to phone up during the clear bank process and mm. say, "Hi, it's the pest here," and they said, "We know, we recognise the number." <laughs> and uh, it's you know, it's just being straightforward and having a conversation and trying to make it work. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm lucky, as we were saying earlier on. You know, my my life is my hobby, and I think you have the same sort of environment. Mm. And you know, if you get to that point, you're very, very lucky. Yeah, I mean that that definitely drives me. Yeah. Uh, I find I'm um, I really love this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and when you do, and you're solving, I mean, the things that you've done in comparison to what I've done is like you you've done so much more. No, no. But the but the <laughs> thing the things that uh, drive drive me are like solving really big problems. And if yeah. you can if you really can galvanize people around solving those really big problems, yeah. the momentum behind it is is almost unstoppable. Um, and once you get that momentum going, it's just an amazing thing, isn't it? it so is. I, I mean, uh, you know, me, me and you till, up until uh, what, like three or four weeks ago, lived quite close to each other. So you're, you're in Roxham. And we never had a beer. I know, right? <laughs> well, nev- never, in, never in Norfolk, no, but that's, definitely that's in true. another place. Outside of here. Um, yeah. but, um, but I mean, Tell us about ClearBank because uh, you know I, I know the story of of, uh, of the the origin of it, but like tell yeah. everybody else that because I think it's just a fascinating okay. like where did the idea for ClearBank go? And actually, maybe explain ClearBank because okay. cl- like people say banking, yeah. but ba- like clearing banking is like a whole different spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Step back before I dive into that, just put a little bit of context around that if that's okay. Sure. Um, you know, WorldPay grew. We became, you know, massively um, operationally active uh, very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I think 118 countries, 12,000 customers, a couple of billion transaction turnover in about yeah. 18 months, 20 to 275 people. So it's a massive ramp up story. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up being in a situation where we had to sell that to, world, to RBS because yeah. of the way the world w- was in 2002. So post that, I went on to work, look at voice biometrics, how mobile works, and developed another business called Cashflows, which put together a business banking proposition, mm. almost identical to the one that we've just announced on ClearBank with Tide. Um, and during that process, and also during the process with WorldPay, you know, we used to pay the merchants in 2000, 2001. So we were doing you know, 20,000 swift payments a month, mm. and they were absolutely awful to do. You know, really, or, every, you know, if you imagine everything would go wrong, they would go wrong. Yeah. You know? 
When we're putting together cash flows, both, fortunately, both of them, in fact, all of my fintech businesses are still running, which is a, you know, a great surprise and delight for mm-hmm. me in equal bucket loads. Um, when we were building cash flows, that was to do business banking. We connected into HSBC, mm-hmm. and I really started to understand the spaghetti that exists within our national payment infrastructures yeah. and how the national payment infrastructures link into the international infrastructures and all of the friction that exists you know, financial services is the only industry in the world with no service levels. Mm. And we as consumers, you know, outside of our day job, we're consumers of all this stuff, yeah. accept all of that. Everybody does. And that's it, got to change. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, it we, is. we, um, we talk a lot to people now about the service is, you know, the absence of that service. Yep. And, and the irony of calling it financial services when the service is so low. Yep. Um, but that has to be the differentiator that comes back to it, really. You know, we're, we've moved from a, an analog world where the service was actually delivered by a human yep. and the technology was a, you know, a, a, a man with a book in the back, you yep. know, like lit- a literal ledger. Yep. Um, to the humans being taken out of it because of digital yep. and the service being at that base level still, yep. which is terrifying, isn't it? You know, and that's, that's why we, you know, we often talk about, you know, we've seen people spend, you know, hundreds of billions of pounds to degrade the service that's being de- given to the customer. Yep. It's just we're degrading that, we're giving a poor experience quicker yep. rather than actually improving the level of service. Um, I mean, the, the way I, I, I see it now is that, you know, the, everybody can consume more than they need all of the time. Mm. And, you know, you, and that's just, that's the way it is. Yeah. Except you can't. Because if you go and try and open a bank account with any of the major institutions, or you try, even within the minor institutions, you try and create, you know, interlinked deposit accounts, everything's fragmented and broken up. Yeah. And it just doesn't make sense doesn't make sense. Mm. Um, I was at a banking conference and I said that if you go to any of the major banks in the UK, when you go through the revolving doors, because for some reason they all have revolving doors, I think it's for the marketing department when they leave, but anyway, there's a thing called the CSR box in the revolving thing. Just if you go in the bank, have a look, look up. It's a black box, little blue light on it. Okay. And CSR stands for common sense remover. <laughs> and I really think there's this void, this thing that happens that you go through mm. and you forget that you consume the service which, is what you, which you're trying to, to actually put into the marketplace. Yeah, yeah there, there is a, a definite sort of leaving yourself yeah. at the door, isn't there? Yeah. Which is, like you say, in, in banking, everybody's a consumer of it. Yeah. So it just makes, you know, Common so sense removed, as you say. Off the back of all of that, I apologise for rambling on a bit, but off the back of that, in 2014, I met with Mary Stark, Sparks, Stark, sorry, who was the interim payment service regulator at a conference. Mm-hmm. She was with some colleagues from the Treasury. Um, and the conference was about access to payments systems, surprisingly enough. And she, I said to her, what are you going to talk about then? She said, well, access to payment systems of credit unions and building societies. And I was very cheeky. I said, that's going to be a relatively short presentation then because there's not a lot of that. <laughs> And I said, you know, what really concerns me, I said, and that is the fact that we haven't bothered post-global financial crisis, new tech, all of the reasons we haven't bothered to bring up a new clearing bank in the UK. Mm. And if you look at the way you change a market, it's always by doing something brave and new and accepting that it may fail. Mm. And the analogy that I used was looking at the grocery, the food retailing marketplace, where Aldi and Lidl had arrived out of the blue, competing with Tesco's and Sainsbury's, Mm. and taken significant market share. What I said that we needed to do in relation to um, financial services was to bring up a new clearing bank. Mm. And my assumption was that there was a regulatory or political reason why that hadn't happened. And I then stupidly said that if there wasn't one, I'd have a go at doing it. And Mary said, I'll get back to you. 
and you know, you and I have both been to many conferences, you meet fascinating people who evaporate. Yeah. You know, they disappear, I don't know where they go to, there must be a big herd of them somewhere, but they've <laughs> gone. Um, but Mary wasn't one of those. She came back to me and said, uh, about three weeks later, she said, look, I've been to everybody on this, Treasury, Bank of England, PRA, CMA, all of the people need to be around mm. a conversation that you need to have. And none of them can think of a reason why this shouldn't happen. And on reflection, actually, all of them think it's probably a good idea. So we've got your contact at the FCA. Go start talking. Wow. That was it. And you were like, oh, God, I've got to do this now. Uh, like I said, I'd have a crack at it. No, I, I really want to. It was like, you know, I'd never climb Everest, but I'll have a go at doing a bank. <laughs> and so, so that's how it started. Yeah. And, and what happened then? Because, like, I mean... Well, we spent three months talking to the FCA about KYC, AML, and all the other good things that yeah. they, they look at. Got to a point where they said, actually, you know, we are going to support this project. Mm -hmm. And we think, you know, it's got legs and it's worth us putting our shoulder behind you, Nick, to try and make it work. And I was overwhelmed by that. Um, it didn't give me any guarantees, obviously, mm -hmm. but it was the support, which was really good. Yeah. So our next stop was the Bank of England or the PRA in relation to going to do a presentation with them, which the FCA came along to, to wow. support us, which was really good. Yeah. And so we sat in what I now know would be a, a mini pre-challenge session, mm -hmm. but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, where we sat one side of the table and everybody else sat the other side of the table <laughs> and you get fired a lot of questions and all the rest of it. And at the end of it, I was expecting them to say, this is a really great idea, Nick, get on, to it, on with it. And it was, a, thank you very much, we will write to you. <laughs> now, I now know that's the form, but it was quite a surprise at the time. And we got a letter um, about three weeks later laying out, you know, you don't have a business plan. Well, we hadn't got a business plan, all right? There are some concerns over, you know, are you able to produce an ICAP and an ILAP? Mm. You know, there's some real technical stuff that you have to do when you bring up a bank. Yeah. But the biggest challenge that they threw at us was we need to, you to confirm, given what you want to do, that you're going to be able to become a member of the payment schemes in the UK, CHAPS, mm. banks, faster payments, check and credit, and all the rest of it. Yeah. That was a huge ask. And so I sat and thought, how are we going to do that and keep the project quiet? All right. And given the shareholding structures and all the rest of those schemes, you know, I didn't fear competition from the big four banks at all because we were trying to do something that actually was complementary to them in a strange sort of way. Um, but what I didn't want to do was go out and get a huge rumour mill going about this is what we're trying to do yeah. when we could fail. Mm -hmm. Because when you set up a bank, there is no guarantee of success. You know, you have, as I've told our shareholders in Clearbank, for the, for up until authorisation, we had a bonfire with your money. They mm -hmm. are my exact words, and that's yeah. what we did. Um, so I wrote to the CEOs of the payment schemes, attached my bio, attached a non-disclosure agreement, mm. put it in a brown envelope and used these red things, which occasionally you see on street corners called <laughs> post boxes, and posted it to them Man. saying, please, could you sign the NDA mm. and then we'll talk to you. And I said, at the end of the meeting that I need with you, which will be very short, I just need a yes or a no answer, which I will feed back to the regulators. Mm. All the NDAs came back signed. All the meetings went through. And that was the start of the veil of secrecy, for want of a better description, that we managed to hang over Clearbank while we ran around trying to get the thing set yeah. up. Wow. And you guys kept that very, very tight as well. Like There was no, no market inkling around it until you announced that it was the, done. It was so funny because during the process, we, you, know, you have massive interaction with the regulators who mm. are superbly helpful, superbly yeah. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. And they kept saying, it hasn't leaked out, Nick. It hasn't leaked out. And the only people that we didn't have on NDAs were the regulators because I didn't dare ask them because <laughs> that's a step too far. Well, at and least at that stage. I kept saying to them, the leak's going to come from you guys. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody does it and it's the FCA, you're yeah, definitely yeah. in trouble at that but stage. It, it, but, and ironically, actually, at the end, that was probably true. But anyway. Yeah.
This deal sets a path for a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Clearly, the pressure is beginning. Produce jobs on the market. The European Union. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. But I, I guess, uh, I mean, the success of ClearBank as well is is really taking off. You know, recently with, obviously, with the, the remedies from RBS, you yeah. know, uh, 100 million, was it there? No, we got, we, we got 60. 60 million. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's an amazing yep. thing for the, uh, obviously, I see a lot of people think it's a tide thing, yep. but it's not. It's ClearBank that, it has, that have that. And actually, everything that underpins that is... Uh, backing into, I mean, you guys. So I think the, the other thing as well that is that you you know we just announced we've done a similar deal with Nationwide. Yeah, they had fifty. Yeah, so you know that's at one hundred and ten. So I'm just clocking up the amount. I'm at about sort of linked up at about one hundred and fifteen, you know, million quid out yeah. from the remedies to various different businesses I'm involved in. So yeah. it's quite good. Well, and again, it's it's. Um, I mean, I since the crisis, you know the. The regulators and everybody here have done a great job of fostering competition, but the yep. competition has been almost at the consumer level. Actually, what we're seeing now is like real competition uh, in real infrastructure within the the banking system, yep. which is, I mean, people get really excited about like apps and stuff, but like this bit is the bit where I get really excited about because it's it's the fundamental building blocks it's the that pl- actually it's the plumbing completely, but. Plumbing is suddenly sexy. Do you yep. know what I mean? Like, actually, and it, and it is so in critical because, I mean, beauty uh, definitely isn't just skin deep when it comes yep. to banking. Because if you can't do things here cost effectively, you're never going to be able to get to delivering the capability that you really want from yep. an experiential perspective. So, Correct. I mean, how, how has that journey been? Because how, how, when did ClearBank come to market? Um, we were outed, if that's the right word, early in 2017, because hmm. uh, the journalist, having a bad, very, very bad Christmas over Christmas 2016, was reading the Monetary Policy Committee meeting minutes. Right. Why would you do that? I mean, mm. anyway, so, uh, not much on Somebody has yeah. to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so we got approached early in January saying, look, you know, we tracked you down. We know you're doing ClearBank. What can you tell us about it? And I said, mm. nothing. You know, in due course, it's you know, just ignore it. It's nothing important. So they got very, very excited, as journalists do, because they thought they were onto some massive scoop, which they weren't, of course. And they said, look, we're going to write what's in the public domain. I said, I can't stop you doing that. 
So Wall Street Journal went first with new challenger bank called ClearBank, mm. very closely followed by the Financial Times, almost the same lead, new challenger bank, ClearBank. And then when we announced ClearBank on the 28th of February, I was able to say, actually, we're a clearing bank, and the clue was in the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should have looked at that. So they, they, there's a journalist, Neil Pah. Yeah. But, uh, but so, so I guess, you know, learning from the no clearing banks in 300 years yeah, to doing years. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you have done that? again, if you knew how hard it was to get it to where you got it? We would never have got this through without serious help. Yeah. You know, and it was, I mean, there was one point during the project, I can't go into specific details, you'll understand why, where we actually had to call a meeting with all the regulators and say, look, this is a real problem that we need to find a work away round. Mm. Um, and can we? Because if we can't, we just can't see how this will work. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they were very, very accommodating in relation to understanding that problem. Mm. Um, we never were formally told the problem was resolved, but we were told to carry on, and we did, and we yeah. got authorised. So, I mean, it, that's interesting, isn't it? Because so many, you know, you've worked at many big banking organisations as yeah. have I, and it's so many times the regulator is the excuse, you know, is the boogeyman being told that you can't do something because they wouldn't. I have. think, and actually, that just isn't the case. The word it? you've just used is absolutely the word. It's the excuse. Mm. I haven't met, I spend a lot of my time now talking to regulators around the world, I haven't met a bad regulator. Mm. I've met lots of challenging regulators, but hey, it goes with the name of their job. Yeah. They have to challenge, they need to understand this stuff. Right? And if you're being straightforward, explain to them what you're trying to achieve, you know, and it's not like to blow the whole financial markets up and all the rest of it, they'll be accommodating and listen to what you are. And mm. quite often, they'll come out and tease you know, the, the arguments you're putting forward quite sensibly. So. Yeah. Well, if that, you go in with a you know a cracky cranky idea, right, or you go in and say I hate the regulators before you even start, then you're going to get beaten up. Completely agree. And and uh, um, our experience with like say the Bank of England or yeah. the FCA, uh, it, you know into into government as well. Yeah. Actually, people are looking now. This is all about customer outcomes. And actually, if the if the financial services ecosystem is healthy, the whole com- the whole uh, country is healthy. Yeah. Um, and very, very often, it's been almost at the stranglehold of two or three companies, which yeah. is, I mean, I, I always say it's like the difference between choice and competition. Yeah. Like choice of three things that are the same is not the same as people actually competing in a marketplace. Yeah. Um, whether that's at clearing level or whether that's at, at retail banking level, mm-hmm. um, you know, actual competition is really what's needed. Well, yeah, I think that we've been very, very lucky with Mark Carney. I've had the pleasure to meet him a few times. Mm. Uh, and his view in relation to what's happening over here is he wants to encourage competition. He's not frightened of it. And that permeates through the organisation. Uh, and you've just seen the recently published Future Finance report yeah. uh, that's come out from Hugh Van Stennis and all the rest of it. They're really trying to look ahead, trying to guide and also accept that there'll be failure. Mm. Now, that's a major step for any regulator to say, you know, we're going to let people play, we're going to let people learn, and we're going to recognise before we get to the point of agreeing that they're going to do something mm. that some of them are going to fail. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's pragmatic. It is. Because in every other industry, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, I mean, it's reality, isn't it? it you know, is. pe- people have to face into the fact that this is what happens with companies. Yeah. And almost to a certain degree, learning from the crisis where actually artificially propping up some organisations, or yeah. albeit... Uh, systemic in terms of the the requirement around it, 
it leads to so many different problems down the line in terms of where you get to, doesn't yeah. it? So, I mean, Mark Carney seems to, I think since he's announced he's stepping back and yeah. there's all different types of rumors about where he's going next, whether it's the um, IMF or wherever, like actually, I think he, he is really saying what he thinks now. Yeah. Um, I hope the person who comes in next kind of gives that same sort of directness to it because it, it feels like there's a, um, we're in a moment, yeah. you know, like, and actually I'd say, for any cycle, I think we were talking about this when we chatted before. Yeah. Was it seven year cycles for? Yeah, yeah. We're what we ten years into a seven year cycle. Yeah, we are. So, so we're due a we're due a, a downtick, aren't we? <laughs> um, and what we need is strong leadership across yeah. the regulations, across the banking infrastructure to really weather that storm. Yeah. I think it's a shame he's going because he's got the vision of where this needs to go to. Mm. But I equally understand why he's going as well. So. Yeah. So uh, Clearbank. Yeah. Um, where are you at now in that cycle, I guess? Because, you know, coming out then, you know, you've had two years on it. You've got Nationwide. Yeah. You've got people like uh, Tide and obviously Oak the Remedies Fund, Oakenorth on yeah. it. Literally, Val Christensen, who I've just literally seen before I came into this from yeah. Oakenorth. So, yeah. I mean, it feels like there's such an opportunity to continue doing what you're doing there. But equally, there's different opportunities, I guess, globally. There are. I mean, I was very fortunate. I, I was allowed to be um, uh, executive chairman of Clearbank for two years, um, which is rare. You know, that had to go through the court of the Bank of England and get approved. Yeah. And so I had two years as exec chairman. And then last December, um, stood down from that role, mm. remain on the main board. But we brought in a guy called David Gagey in to be uh, the non-exec chairman yeah. to meet all the governance codes and all the rest of it which has allowed me to have a bit more time to have some fun. Mm. But basic tenants behind Clearbank are the same from when we put the original business plan together in 2014. And that was we'd have super, hard, super fast tech yeah. that auto-reconciles through a single API and that we would be one of the only banks, if not the only other bank in the UK, save for the Bank of England, who can pay all of their customers back on demand mm. every time. And that was very, very important for us to do that. I mean, because that stop, we, we don't compete with our customers, yeah. we support our customers. And that allows us to have these multiple complex relationships, yeah. but honestly and openly with them. I mean, uh, re repeat that point, because like that, that's, a, that's a fundamentally different way of doing it. Because it the risk that you're taking out of the system by doing it like that is total, right? It so is. Just, just say that again. Okay, we guarantee yeah. right, that we can repay all of our customers on demand mm. at the same moment in time. Yeah. The consequence of that would be I'd get fired by my shareholders if it happened, but we can do that. And it's very important yeah. because what we, we're not holding their, well, we are holding their deposits if you go with a technical word, but we're holding the transactional funds which their customers need to use. Yeah. So what right have we got to go playing with that money in the marketplace? Sure. Now we could, right? Because we know what our net stable mm. position is and all the rest of it, right? But we, we choose not to do that. Yeah. And, and that, uh, you know, people talk about trust a lot. Yeah. You know, the trust in that system that anything that is put into it can come out of it is fundamentally different to any, anybody else, really. I know, I know. Which, which I, I think is an... I, I'm, I'm not sure whether people appreciate how different that is, really. I, th I think that if you are um, looking for a transactional banking partner, this just sounds a bit salesy, I apologise for it. That's one of the things you really need to consider. Mm. Right? Completely. Because, you know... If, you, if that isn't important to you, as you for your business model, then you've got a range of other providers. Mm. Right? But if that financial stability is key to you, then the market's relatively limited at the moment, pending whatever the Bank of England do in relation to opening up at some stage in the future if they decide to do that. I think it's been really interesting to see nobody else... Uh, 
has come to market to try and get into clearing yep. since you did it. Yep. Um, I mean, it, uh, for me, it almost spells to how hard it was for you guys to get to get you know deliver it in the first place. But but given you know given the opportunity, given nobody's done it for three hundred years, given yep. the the um, relative inertia in the players that were there prior. I mean, it, it is amazing that nobody's tried to follow in your footsteps to a certain degree. Because I guess from a, a retail banking or commercial banking, the, the 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 sort of plaster was pulled off with a Starling or a Monzo coming to market, and now yeah. you're seeing a deluge of people. Yeah. Um, what do you, why do you think that is? Not many people go to college to become a plumber. That's true. That's very true. And you know, it's you know, although it sounds very very easy, hmm. it's actually quite complicated. Yeah. And then when you start to overlay AI and you know AI onto all of your AML in relation yeah. to all of your transactions and everything else that's going on, you know you, you, all the onboarding challenges you know that we have to go through, it's not a simple process. Which is why we've got three hundred people in the building mm. just over from here. Yeah. Um, and you know, if something else wants to come to the market, fine. Good luck. You know, enjoy. We'll welcome them. It's not about staking our position. Um, but I think that the approach that we've taken to what we're doing here and what we're potentially doing in Europe mm. um, is differential. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier, I, I spend a lot of time talking to central bankers at the moment on another yeah. project we're working on. You know, the fact that we've done this daft thing, this non-banking position of keeping the funds safe and mm. secure, which only the central bankers do, has really set us apart. Yeah. No, it, it really has. So, I, I mean... Uh, as well as ClearBank, as well as everything yep. that's happening there. I mean, you've just been um, formally announced, I think, as chairman of Funding Options, haven't yep. you? Um, that's a, you know, Funding Options are a friend of ours, the really good company. Yep. Um, so, what what are you taking on there? Because I'm every time I see you, I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to count the days in the week of like where you're actually fitting all There's of these. Seven things. days in the week. I keep telling you this. <laughs> there are. I mean, when you eight, eight, certain... eight if you include Sunday. That, that's true. <laughs> and I mean, your kids are at that certain age now as yeah. well, right? So you're you're in a situation where the Sunday afternoon. Mine are still only five and seven, so uh, I, I, yeah, I'll yeah, still you, get in trouble. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't have that. I've, I've, my most my eldest kids have left home. Mm. My youngest son's a skier, as I think you know, and so you know, three weeks time he's off to um, the Alps and whatever. Yeah. We'll see him when we see him. Um, I think that the you know, funding options is really interesting. I've got this view, and I'm probably going to be wrong because you know it's easy to be wrong. That there's a huge huge change occurring in our marketplace, mm -hmm. and the change is being driven, I think, largely by the, the emergence of all the different challenges. All right, who have yet really to, in my mind, completely differentiate their stories. Mm. There's a lot of me too in relation to their offerings, as you know. Yeah. All right, and which I think is is a shame, frankly. Um, and I think what's going to happen is that people are getting savvy to their transactional banking requirements mm. because if you're in business, you have to have transactional banking or else you fail because you can't meet payroll. Yeah. All right. Um, the same really for consumers. But there's a difference between transactional banking and financial services. Sure. And financial services are things that you consume occasionally. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't all run out every day of the week to get a loan, despite the adverts we see on TV. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't all move every week, yeah. thank God. Um, and I think that to give people choice away from the old way of banking, mm. which was that you had a bank manager, you had a branch, you had that close relationship. This is you know, going back 20 odd years before the break or the collapse, if you like, of branch banking. Right? You used to feel that you were obliged to do all of your banking with one group yeah. or a bank and a building society. That's changing rapidly. Mm. 
rapidly. And I think that you know, funding options in particular has got a very interesting business proposition, both here in the UK and in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. with it, you know, we're, we're backed by ING, yeah. um, to actually develop this portal approach where you have the large banks um, sitting, providing transactional banking and certain services, deposit taking, and then their customers able to procure other services from a portal of suppliers. Mm. Um, and I think the you know the, the, the guy, we've got I think 137 lenders on our UK panel, a reasonable number on the Dutch panel, which is growing rapidly. Um, I think that over the course of the next few years, especially if you believe in where open banking is going to go to, that that model holds reasonably solid mm. and is the way that banks will move. And I know that some of the, the the new challenger UK banks are looking to try and emulate that. Yeah, I think it's I mean again another company whose name says exactly what it does. It does. <laughs> it gives you funding options. Yeah. Like, it's, it's in the name. But well, I keep but, telling them, open banking demands funding options. Yeah. And they've got the best brand name yeah. around, but, you know. So, so I guess on, on that, where you are, and I completely agree with your, your point around the, um, the challenge banks in this space, because yeah. what we're seeing is non-defendable positions. You know, we're seeing people who have a, quite an interesting proposition, but it doesn't stop somebody else coming out yeah. and doing exactly the same thing with exactly the same purposes and maybe spending more money on marketing, therefore acquiring more people. Yeah. Um, so like, how do you see this, this world shaping out? Because there's, there's sort of an explosion, you know, given your experience, you know, you, you've got into the, the wave before there is a wave yeah. multiple times now. And you've been, I mean, you've been at the scene of enough of these crimes to, to, to call it uh, not luck as, yeah. as you do, but judgment. Yeah. So, I mean, where do you see this sort of playing out? Because the SME space, the retail space, you know, fintech in the UK is, is really blowing up now. Um, mm. How do you see this playing out? I think uh, last week I was at the launch of the um, Nesta uh, Open Challenge for mm. consumer banking. And I made the point that innovation isn't a different text color on an app, because it's not, <laughs> right? I met loads of people at that launch event. There's one and a half million pounds worth of uh, prize money available via yep. that initiative for consumer-focused uh, um, uh, in initiatives. And I think that there's a lot of clever stuff going to start coming together. And I think it's going to be the people that knit the different ideas together into different portals, which will win the day. Mm. Nobody's got a handle on all innovation. Uh, and if you look at some of the larger banks, both in the UK and within continental Europe and, and wider afield, you know, this approach of you know, running their little sandbox environments, teasing some fintechs into an environment where they can, can see whether they can grow and then absorbing them in or, or discarding them, mm. hasn't really worked. Yeah. It hasn't really worked. So I think that there's going to be this move into uh, encompassing many smaller companies within potentially a portal environment, mm. um, and delivering solutions that matter to customers. Um, because quite often, you know, we develop great technology, and actually there's not a market for it. Mm. Right? Or Mrs. Smith of Three Acacia Gardens, who ought to be using it, doesn't understand it. Mm. You know, if you go and talk to most consumers, and say, how do you consume data? They'll go, what? <laughs> I consume data? Yeah, I, I've got a phone now, actually, thank mm. you. And it's just, you know, sometimes the way we present things is, yeah. is not very clear. So I think that the, the way that we present and the way that we consume that is going to change. Mm. Um, you know, back in sort of 2002, I, I set up a thing called the Voice Commerce Group. I was passionate about the way that voice works mm. because it's our natural way of, way of communicating. And, you know, I talk to my computer. My computer talks to me. You know, I have a sad relationship with it. But it never answers me back. Yeah. And I think that the whole way that we interact with our devices, and then you start to overlay into that cognitive services, you know, that I choose to use, and then how do you 
uh, use those cognitive services, you know, within different environments mm. is a whole opp massive opportunity, um, which somebody will go and have a go at. I think it's, I mean, what would you consider yourself? Would you consider yourself, I mean, you're, uh, you've been in banking, but it sounds to me like at heart you're a technologist. I mean, would you consider yourself a banker or a technologist? Or? I'm not, definitely not a banker. None of, none of my colleagues in Clearbank, in fact, they'd laugh. if they. If, in fact, they will do. If you leave that in this, they'll laugh. <laughs> I'm definitely not a banker. Okay. I just, I, I don't like friction in business process, mm. I guess would be the sum. Yeah. Right? And so I try and, you know, remove it or change it or alter the process. Mm. Um, and so if that makes me a technology guy, then I'm a tech guy. If it makes me a marketeer, it makes me a marketeer guy. But I just that that if you look look back at the the business successes I've been fortunate enough to have, all of them have removed some friction and mm. changed the way the process works and makes it more efficient for the customer. Yeah, and that's the important bit. Nice. So what? Um, I mean, you've you've done this enough times. What would be the advice you would give to somebody? You know, we have a lot of people who who listen to this are either getting into fintech or wanting to start something. I mean, what would be your advice for somebody trying to start a business or build a business? Oh, God, I'd, I'd never give advice because it always comes back to haunt you. <laughs> um, I've got the two and a half rule. I think that's very good advice. Okay. And that is that um, time, money, deliverables, software build, all of those things mm. multiply the time that you think it's going to take by two and a half, and you'll probably be about right. Mm. All right, so that's funding and all the rest of it. Mm. The second thing is that if you do a business plan, right? You've got to do a business plan that shows continuing investment, not just to a break-even position. Yeah. Because otherwise, what you're doing is writing out your own shareholding. Because you're going to get to a point where you need more money. Yeah. Right? Which all, all growing businesses require capital and you can't get it all up front. Yeah. So you just need to think about that and be careful. Mm. Um, and then if you read my book, you'll see there's four rules, but I'm not going to tell you today because it will spoil it and I, you know, I do need the commission. <laughs> <laughs> so when does the book come out? Hopefully later this year. Yeah, I look forward to reading it. I mean, I, I think I've again either in a in an airport or a, a, a pub somewhere. I've heard some of the, some of the stories, and definitely yeah. I'll be buying the book. So uh, I'll send you a copy. Thanks. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming in, Nick. We My really pleasure. really appreciate you coming and spending the time with us. Um, I think I, I honestly I think I could sit here and talk to you for like another ten hours, but you'll have to come back. <laughs> I'll and, forgive you. <laughs> you'll have to uh, come back and talk to us again when uh, I mean the next multi-billion idea that you're leading uh, comes to fruition so I'm super super excited okay probably see you late September then <laughs> sounds good alright thanks Nick bye